I appreciated so much the, the songs that we sang this morning. Because when we look at what our attitude is going to be during the time of crisis, we must prepare ahead of time. It's often said that in that time of crisis, you don't rise to your level of expectation, you fall to the level of your training. And you would fall to the level of your preparation. Um, I thought of the words of Habakkuk as we were singing this morning. Habakkuk. He says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, the produce of the olive fail, and the yields, the, the fields yield no f- food, the flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stall, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, and I will take joy in the God of my salvation." We have to predetermine that we are going to exalt in the Lord before the crisis hits. Because if we haven't set our hearts towards that, we won't suddenly rise up in God. And I appreciated the focus of the music. We didn't talk in advance of what I I felt like God had laid on my heart to share. But it really fits in beautifully because it puts a divine perspective on all of our lives. So much of our culture, so much of our fallen nature just drives us to be self-absorbed and self-focused. It's all about me. It's all about my happiness, my creature comforts, my well-being. And for some people, yes, we had some relatives. uh, And I noticed this about older people. We were having coffee with some people earlier this week. And we began to talk about all of our aches and pains that go along with aging. I don't know what there is about that. And, and you know, sometimes, I mean, Janice had a dear aunt and uncle, and the first time we would see them, from the moment we would see them, they would begin to tell us about all their medical problems. And I wasn't quite sure whether to say, isn't that too bad or isn't that just wonderful? Because it gave them something to talk about. And <clears throat> I noticed that those who have joined the 65 to 70 circle seem to have more to talk about in terms of aches and pains. <laughs> now, we chuckle about that, but my point is, is so much of us, it's all focused on me. And far too often, our Christian experience is based on what is God doing for me in the moment? Am I happy in the moment? And we don't see the larger picture of God. It's amazing. If you have your Bible, open to Ephesians chapter 6. I think it is amazing that in this sixth chapter, Paul begins to talk about family relations. In verse 1, children obeying your parents, honoring your father and mother. 
previously he's talked about husband and wife relationships, and now he's going to go into this most amazing section. Just a few brief verses, five through nine, talking about slaves and masters. How interesting to me that that is all done in the framework of family relationships. And if we can just hold that for a second, let me ask you a question. Do you like your job? How do you feel about your job? Some of us are gainfully unemployed in retirement. And I think about all that I'm doing, and I'm wondering how I ever had time to work. But that was a joke that you didn't get, and that was probably just as well, that it just went right over. How do you feel about your boss? Is your boss easy to work for? Is your boss a slave driver? But let's ask a greater question. How should Christians conduct themselves in the workplace, whether they be the boss, the employer, the the supervisor, the foreman, or a member of management, or an, an employee? For that matter, what kind of an employee are you? What kind of a boss are you? Well, Just like our conduct in our homes, so our conduct in the workplace is a very clear indicator of the depth of our faith and our faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, one of the things that as a church, as we look at leadership being raised up in the church, we look at what's going on in the workplace. How can someone be faithful in the body of Christ if they're not faithful in the workplace? And today's scriptures, Paul's going to speak very directly to those issues. And in fact, we're going to see that there is a direct link between trusting in Jesus and our submission to him and his authority in every area of our lives. If you have your Bible, would you stand together with me? We're going to give honor to the Word of God. Begin reading together in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. If you don't have a Bible, the the words are going to be uh, on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible on the way out, we've got some Bibles in the back. Please take one as our gift from you, uh, to you. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. Right church, wrong pew. There we go. You know what I meant. I got my mix all talked up. We're in chapter 6 and verse 5. I got confused because even in the ESV, there are differences in some of the uh, additions. Because what I used to prepare for up front, the first word is bonds servants, but in my ESV, it is slaves. Let's read together. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with all sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as men pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men 
knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he is, who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Father, thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to receive what you have to say to us. I pray that you will bless the word of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. Let them be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Let nothing bitter or critical come, but let it be life-giving water from your word by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. That word slaves, the word bond servants, interesting word. I looked it up in the Greek. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I did look up some things in the Greek. And, it, and it's amazing because what I discovered is that word is a word that is used in a sense of someone who will forever be in servitude. There is no hope that they are an indentured servant, that at some point in the future they will be free. But the word that is used there is a very clear word that speaks of someone who will be in perpetual servitude. And I began to look at uh, this whole issue of slavery as I was in preparation. Uh, did a lot of research. Uh, interesting thing uh, discovered some things from a, a, a young pastor in Nova Scotia by the name of Adam Renoff. One of the things he said that it was amazing as I read, one out of five people in the Roman Empire was a slave. But in the Roman Empire, slavery had a much different status than what we think of, and I'll say more about what frames our frame of reference. But slaves could be doctors, they could be cooks, they could be professionals. In the context of our thinking here in North America, that somehow doesn't fit for us. Dr. Craig uh, Keener, professor at uh, Asbury Theological Seminary, says uh, a significant portion of the ancient household slaves became free although it was partly so that the slaveholders didn't have to keep on supporting them. It was an interesting thing that when a slave in Roman citizenship, and I, and I learned this from Dr. Keener's writings, that when a Roman slave was freed, uh, generally at the age of about 30, they became actually Roman citizens themselves, and the former slaveholders were responsible to provide them legal, political, and financial help. Interesting. I also uh, was a bit amused as I was reading some of this material to discover that, that some of the aristocrats were a bit upset over what was going on with some of these freed persons who had, they called it, become social climbers in their era. Amazing things that were there. Well, you know, sometimes we get a little frustrated with Paul. Why didn't he speak more clearly to this whole issue of slavery? 
But understand that in the context of the verses that we read, they're not meant to address the institution of slavery. It's like when a couple comes to us as pastors and they're having marital problems, we don't take a whole session and say, okay, now just in this session, we are going to focus on the legal ramifications of marriage and the laws in the state of Indiana regarding marriage. It would be ludicrous. If someone comes and they're struggling with an addiction problem, we say, now wait a minute, now what we're going to do for you is we're going to put on a seminar on drugs. And uh, we, we want to explain to you where the international sources of those drugs are. And we want to talk to you about the cartels. And uh, we want to give you all of this. That would be stupid. Well, are these larger issues important? Absolutely. But they're not the most immediate need in the counseling situation. Do some of these issues need to be addressed? Absolutely. So in the same way, Paul is he's writing to real people in real churches, and he's addressing situations where slaves are there. If we had the time, it would be very profitable for us to just, say, jump into Paul's letter to Philemon. What an amazing thing that is there. He writes this letter, and in one of my, my uh, study Bibles from a different translation than this, uh, Dr. Uh, Charles Ryer talks about the fact that Philemon wasn't the only slaveholder in the church in Colossae. We go back to Ephesus in Paul's letter, it's estimated that perhaps one-third of the population of Ephesus was slaves. And in many respects, they were considered an integral part of the family. So it's interesting. I pointed out to you early that chapter 5, Paul's talking about husband and wife relationships. He begins chapter 6 talking about children and their attitudes and their responses to their parents. And of course, parents bringing their children up in, uh, in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. So to move into this whole sense of talking about slaves and masters is very consistent with the culture of that time. Now, Paul doesn't condone slavery, but instead provides instruction for believing masters and slaves regarding their relationship in a culture where slavery was legal. Interesting thing that I discovered, and, I, and this I got from Dr. Charles Ryer. He said, the result, as is often observed, is that slavery began to slowly die out in antiquity through the influence of Christianity. I hope we have this next note. Here's a quote from the introduction to Philemon. Listen to this. There is no doubt 
that it would have been difficult for the institution of slavery to survive in the atmosphere of love created by this letter. In fact, the elements of Paul's appeal found in this letter helped to lay the foundation for the abolition of slavery. Now, please don't take time at this moment to go and flip over and read the introduction to the book of Philemon, the editor's notes in there, or the letter to Philemon. But it is amazing how Paul appeals to him on behalf of this runaway slave. Now that would be great to spend time looking at that, but let me keep us focused on where we are. If we're to understand the context of what Paul is saying here to the Ephesian church, we have to understand some of the nature of what slavery was like during that time and understand that our concept of slavery has been primarily formed by what we know from history of 150 years ago in the American Civil War. In fact, we are all painfully aware that the Civil War did not end racism in our nation. That's a tragedy. That did not resolve the issue. In fact, fact, during during the times of... uh, the civil rights movements, the Rosa Parks, the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and all of that went on to raise the level and raise awareness and to change America. The fact is the problem of racism still exists, and it exists on all sides. All sides. Just yesterday morning, I was reminded again, after men's meeting, had an opportunity to talk with an individual from a very conservative brand of faith. And as he began to talk to me, the racism just began to come out of his mouth. And he didn't even realize it. We're all aware of it. We hear it all the time. Black lives matter, blue lives matter, all lives matter because we are created in the image of Christ. It's a real thing. And I think it's helpful for us to understand as we read these verses in Ephesians 6 and we read this word to slaves that we're reading it in the context of our cultural understanding of what slavery was like in the early years of this nation. And understand that what went on in the Roman Empire was different. Both were wrong. Both were wrong. Make no mistake, they were wrong. I thought how amazing last night we ended our evening going to Bethel College and watching our granddaughter Miriam. It was pretty difficult for her because even though her opening lines were off stage and nobody could see her, 
In Bethel's production of To Kill a Mockingbird, if you've never read it or seen the story, I highly recommend you do. Set in 1935 and the racism that took place there, poor Miriam offstage had to use the N-word numerous times. In fact, when I said something this morning to Aiden, that was that we'd gone to see that, that was the first thing that he talked about. It's a real issue. Now, we could spend a lot of time just really looking into this, but God's got a purpose, and he's got a plan, and it's far beyond my station in life. There is only one solution to the problem of, a ra- of racism in America. And that one solution is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his amazing grace, and the truth of his word being made flesh within us. That's the only thing that's going to change our nation. Because you see, when the grace of God becomes so alive in our hearts, we look beyond color. And all we can see is the grace of God that is at work in our lives and in the lives of others. Well, the purpose of the message this morning is not on social justice. It is to say that that Paul's intent was not to speak to the institution of slavery as it existed in his day, nor to speak directly to slavery as we understand it. And may I just add one more word? When you look worldwide, the institution of slavery is alive and well. And there are probably more people enslaved in our world today than ever before in the world's history. Our hearts should weep over the people, many of them young people, who are enslaved. And they are commodities that are in human trafficking. That doesn't break your heart. Something is wrong. So Paul's not speaking to the institution, but he is speaking to those who are in the institution. Now, for us, we're not slaves. You may think your boss that you're going to have to go to work and try to keep happy tomorrow as a slave driver. So these words that Paul is speaking here are applicable to us because how do we as Christians operate in the workplace even though we feel like slaves? Or maybe you're the boss and you have to be a slave driver. How do we function? Let's look into the Scripture at, at what Paul is saying here. Some of your translations may say bond servants. My must be older translation or edition of the ESV says slaves. 
Obey your earthly masters. Paul's making two very important assumptions here. And this is important for us to understand. Number one, slavery is an issue of the flesh, the earthly body, but not the spirit. The slave owner, your boss, when you punch in tomorrow morning, has limited authority. Do you realize that? They have limited authority. Oh, they may possess your body and they may have the right to tell you what to do while you're on the job, but once you clock out, their authority ends. Now, they have authority over your body and the work that you do, but they have no authority over your spirit. And here's the challenge that Paul is bringing here to people who are caught and trapped in the institution of slavery, where they are physically enslaved. What he's, what he's talking about, obey your earthly masters. Your work ethic as a Christian slave should be distinguishable from that work ethic of an unbelieving slave or worker. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, your performance on the job ought to be radically different from the unbeliever. One of my favorite Old Testament characters and uh, men that I love to look at their life and preach and teach about is Joseph in the book of Genesis. Arthur W. Pink said that there are over a hundred comparisons that you can find in the life of Joseph with the life of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. We won't go through those this morning. But it's amazing to me Joseph never once complains about his servitude. We won't take the time to go through the whole thing. But I will just say this. His brothers meant to kill him, but they sold him as a slave, and that was a promotion for him. Because he's purchased by Potiphar. When he's a 17-year-old kid and we meet him for the first time, he's his father's eyes and ears, and he is a pretty irresponsible teenager. Now he's sold as a slave, and he becomes the master of Potiphar's house, chief executioner for Pharaoh. That's a little bit even beyond county prosecutor, right? Um, Think of that. Now he's running the household. He's got more responsibility. He's falsely accused, thrown into prison, and he ends up running the prison several times, at least twice, maybe three times. I should have looked this up in Genesis. It says that the Lord was with him and Joseph prospered. How does a slave prosper? Think about the context of that. He's got no rights at all. His master can kill him for any reason. And yet as a slave, he prospers. He's different from all of the others. Yes, the hand of the Lord was with him. But you know what? The hand of the Lord that was on Joseph is just as much on you as a believer as it was on Joseph. Now, he may have a different calling for you. God's purpose was was to bring Joseph into a position where he could save his family, 
save Egypt, and feed the world. I don't know what God's purpose for you is, but I just know he's got you in the place he wants you to be. And you may feel like a slave, you may feel like a dog, but God's got you there for a purpose, and this life is about much more than you and me as individuals. That's not in my notes, but... Wow. Second exception is that we're doing the will of God from our hearts. You see, Paul is looking beyond the moment, beyond the outward acts of obedience. He's looking at the real heart attitude. How many people do you know that when the boss is around, they're like this, and yes, sir, yes, sir, and when they're going, doesn't take long to see what the real heart attitude is there. See, when the heart is right, the result is obedience and faithful service, whatever the master sees or doesn't see. I love to tell the story about the first time Janice and I were in Malaysia. It, it was just a chaotic thing. There were to be people picking us up at the airport, and the airport's about, I don't know, 45 minutes it's a long way from the airport into downtown Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. And we got there, and there was nobody there to meet us. And we are dumb Americans who don't know how to speak the language. We didn't know where we were to be. It was a long, chaotic thing. Finally, after an hour or so uh, and a couple of panicked phone calls, um, they came and got us. Frankly, they had forgotten and they got us to where we were to be. And the next day, there was, there was the same man was driving us around. He was working for the church that, that we were uh, there for and with. And I never forgot what, what he said to me. I began to thank him because he was driving us. He was taking care of us. And I said, I, I just want to thank you for what you're doing. We just appreciate this so much. He says, well, that's all right. I'd do it even if you didn't appreciate it because I'm doing it unto the Lord. And I thought, my religious background, we talked about servanthood all the time and that we want to serve, we want to serve. But what we didn't say is that we certainly expect you to appreciate the significance of how we've served you or we won't do it again. Come on, you know what I'm talking about? I was so convicted because here was a man who was serving us and he didn't care whether we appreciated it or not because he was serving under the Lord. Can you imagine how what Paul is saying must have rocked the worldview of the Christian slave living in Ephesus? Hey, think about, we've been going through this book of Ephesians. Think about what they would have been exposed to, the progression here. In Ephesians chapter 1 through 3, the slave would have marveled in the truth that God chose them from eternity past and that he had sent Jesus Christ to die for their sins on the cross. 
He would have marveled that he or she has now been joined with believing Jews and is now a part of God's glorious church. Think of what's being built here. In addition to that and these blessings, there is more to come when Jesus comes again and establishes his rule and reign on the earth. So what the believing slave comes to understand in Paul's epistle here is that the purpose of history is not to make people happy or to satisfy their momentary creature comforts. It's to glorify God, both now and for all eternity. Now here's the amazing thing. In the same way that God's purposes were accomplished through the suffering of Jesus Christ, so he has purposed to glorify himself by our submission to his will, even if it involves suffering. This isn't a popular message. It's one of the things about preaching uh, expositionally as we do. It forces you to look at some of these passages, and it forces you to realize again, what is the real basis of my faith? What is the real basis of my joy in the Lord, if you please? Is it based on everything going good, me having what I want when I want it and the way I want it? Or is it rooted in something much bigger than me? Much larger than my family? Amazing. It challenges us. And suffering has always been a part of that. We know As we look at church history, it's the blood of the martyrs that has always been the seed of revival and evangelism. Do I want to suffer? No. I don't like pain. And the older I get, the more I like my routine. Don't mess up my daily routine. You smile because you know exactly what I mean. Isn't this the way we are? But is my daily routine the basis of my joy in the Lord? It better not be or I'm in trouble. Wow. Amazing. Here's a key that I I wrote down. Saints who happen to be slaves learn that his or her reward doesn't come from an earthly master, but from the heavenly master. And while the earthly master sees very little, our heavenly master sees everything, including my heart. I would just put in a little aside. If, if you're having a problem with your earthly boss at work, start praying God's blessing on that foreman, on that shop manager, on that supervisor. You know what? They may not change, but your attitude will. 
because it's awfully difficult to be angry and gritting your teeth and gnashing your teeth at someone that you're praying for. Earthly masters may be unjust, but our heavenly master is always, always, always gracious, compassionate, and just. There's three areas that I want to give us here that really actions and attitudes that Christians should have that stand in stark contrast to unbelievers. Three areas. The Christian slave, the Christian employee submits inwardly as well as outwardly to the earthly authority that God has allowed in their life. Second, the Christian obeys his or her earthly master as an expression of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And third, the Christian slave looks to his or her heavenly master for their reward, which is eternal and may not necessarily come in this life. I found this. I, th I thought this was just amazing. Said the Christian slave lives by faith. His conduct is energized by the Holy Spirit who works within him to the glory of God. Can we say that tomorrow morning when you punch in at O Dark Hundred? I'm doing my work by faith and I'm energized by the Holy Spirit and I'm going to do my work to the glory of God. Can you imagine what would happen in the workplace if our attitudes towards Christians as Christians changed? And I think one of the most sobering questions we have to ask ourselves as people that I work with know I'm a Christian, can they see a difference in my life and in my work that's different from unbelievers? Well, let's talk about the masters because Paul speaks to them. And he says, Verse 9, he says, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there's no partiality with him. Now, I want you to think about what Paul is not saying here. Interesting. In fact, nowhere in Scripture are you going to read a verse that says, therefore the Lord says, sell and free all your slaves. He wouldn't say sell them. But you don't find anywhere in Scripture where masters are told to free all of their slaves. Interesting thing. Instead, masters are told to submit themselves to God and understand that just like their slaves, they serve a heavenly master. I've never been a, a, a foreman in a factory. I've never been a supervisor. 
In fact, I, I'll tell you, I, I repented before the Lord over the last two weeks as I've been preparing this message. Thinking back to the days of when I worked in the factory, counting the days till Janice and I got married and counting the days till I quit and went to college. I am convinced that it is the grace of God and the presence of my father in the same factory that I didn't get fired. I hated working in the factory, I will tell you that. That's a story for another day. But I want you to know I was challenged. I was convicted and I said, oh God, I was a terrible employee. I was a terrible demonstration of what a Christian worker, a Christian employee needed to look like and act like. Can you imagine how differently slavery might have looked in the Roman Empire or in the United States in the early to mid-1800s if every slave owner used their position to bless the slaves that were entrusted to them? Now hear me, hard, hear me clearly, not for a moment am I justifying the institution of slavery. But just imagine how differently things would have been. If you haven't read the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, I highly recommend that to you. And I love the one line where the, uh, the relative from the north comes to visit the relatives in the south who are slave owners. And the relatives from the north are super spiritual. And they are berating the slaveholders in the south. This is a little bit of a spoiler alert, but it fits. And the southern slave owner looks at the northern relative and said, yeah, you say this and that we ought to free the slaves and that everybody's equal, but you won't let them come to your church or marry your sons and daughters. Ouch. Can you imagine how things would have been changed? Here's the problem. Here's, here's the issue. The problem with authority is that sinners like you and me abuse the power. We use it for selfish gain, and we do it at others' expense so that we can <clears throat> feel better about ourselves or for our profit. But the point is, no matter who we are, master, slave, husband, wife, parent, or child, we as believers are all slaves of Christ, called to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of Christ. That's in Ephesians 5.21. You know, what's interesting to me is that Paul only gives one directive one real directive to these slave masters and slave owners. He said, stop the threatening. 
Now, just like Christian slaves were to serve in a different manner from unbelieving slaves, so Christian masters were to rule in a way that was in sharp contrast to unbelieving masters. Why? Because the slave is every, the master is every bit as much a slave to Christ as his slave or as his employee. And just as the Christian slave obeys his earthly master, looking for God's eternal reward, so the slave master fulfills his obligations to his slaves, knowing that he will ultimately give an account to the heavenly master. And the directive is stop the threatening. And see, threats are based in fear. That's the motive. While the Christian leader motivates through grace that produces gratitude and respect in the hearts of the ones that work for him or serve him. It's the mercy and the grace of our Heavenly Father that really ignites something in our hearts and the desire to please Him in all that we do and say. If you're a boss, what are you doing to inspire respect, admiration, a willingness of those who work for you to serve? Well, let's see if we can't begin to wrap this up because this, this gets uncomfortable for us and yet it's profitable for us because it's right where we live. It's right where we work. Our submission, our service, no matter who we are, is not motivated out of a sense of obligation. It's rooted in relationship. And for us as a Christian, the Bible says that we love him because he first loved us. Our service to Christ, which is reflected in our service in the workplace, is rooted in a love relationship with the creator God of the universe who loved us and gave himself for us. I want to read a a quote by Pastor Bob Duffenbaugh. Pastor is a community Bible church in Richardson, Texas, and I'm not even sure where Richardson, Texas is, but I found this, and and it it really spoke to me. He said he, speaking of Paul, doesn't tell them, the slaves, to rebel. He tells them to be Christian where they are. The great message of Christianity to every man is that it is where God has set us that we must live out the Christian life. Circumstances may be all against us, but that only makes the challenge greater. Christianity does not offer us escape from circumstances us. It offers us conquest of the circumstances. I like that. Worship team, if you will come. So I was reading over things earlier this morning. I was reminded of the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works 
and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I will tell you that as I share some of these things this morning, I come from a, a tradition, a church tradition, where, where we said, well, we don't have to talk about our faith. We live it, and they see it in our lives. And we use that as an excuse never to talk to anybody about Jesus. The last week and a half has, has, has had a profound impact upon me again because I ended up working three accidents. One was a fatal. And you realize how quickly life is gone. And that people are stepping into a Christless eternity. And if we ever get numb to that fact, shame on us, God help us that we become numb to the fact that people are going to spend an eternity in hell. Well, in the tradition that I grew up in, we said, well, we don't need, a, we don't need to verbalize our faith. We just live it. And there's truth that we need to live it. But there's also truth that we need to talk about it. But I am convinced that the foundation that I can stand upon to speak into someone's life is how I have lived out my faith. That opens the door. Living out my faith is not the end in itself. Are you following me? That's the means to the end. And it's a reflection of the reality of what I have and what I am experiencing in Christ Jesus. So whether I'm slave or whether I'm free, whatever my circumstance in life, God has put me there so that he may put his glory on display in my life and through my life, seen by my conduct and by my attitude in the midst of it. That becomes a challenge. Are you following me? I can tell by looking at your faces. The Holy Spirit is speaking some things really deep to our hearts. For some of you, as you think about an employer or a boss, that, that face is right there in your mind, that name, that incident, that something that has happened, it's right there. And what we need to do if it's been a negative thing, we need to take that to the cross. Part of that is taking our attitude, say, God, forgive me for my attitude towards that boss. Whether they're just or unjustice, whether they're righteous or unrighteous, it's, the problem has been the attitude of my heart. That's why Paul says, slaves, submit, but do it from the heart, because it's the heart attitude. Where is our heart this morning? And the thing that I realized as I was going through this and, and, and asking the Lord for grace and putting it together is that this speaks to so many areas of our life. It speaks to our marriages, our attitudes towards our spouse. It speaks to our families. Attitudes of kids towards their parents. Where are we at?
Stand together and pray with me. Holy Spirit, I am so profoundly aware that we are totally dependent upon you to take your word, to make it alive and flesh within us, and to make it practical in our lives. We can, we can sit in church and we can hear your word, we can read your Bible, and, and we go, yes, with our heads, but our hearts are somewhere else. And then to live that out, well, that's another thing as well. Lord, we want to do what you said, that we let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works and not glorify us, but glorify you because of your work within us. Lord, for some of us this morning, we're thinking about people that we work with, that we work for. And they're hard to work for. They're hard to be around. We pray, Holy Spirit, would you work in their lives? But would you change us? So whether we work as a laborer or whether we work as a supervisor, we may do it as unto you, looking to you for eternal rewards. And even though you may have us at this point in a hard place, it's not about us. It's about your kingdom purposes and the eternal working of your spirit. So Lord, we ask you to forgive us. If you're standing here this morning and you're recognizing that your heart hasn't been right, just do a little business with the Father right now. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to change your heart. There's been a problem with a, with a boss, with a foreman, a supervisor, someone at work. Just take that to the Lord and say, God, change my attitude. And would you just bless them and give me an atti a different attitude no matter what they say or no matter what they do? But let your light shine in me and through me They can see a difference, that it's Jesus who's at work in my life. Lord, would you prepare our hearts to come to your table this morning? As we prepare to take of the bread and of the cup, we're reminded that it was through suffering through abuse, through mistreatment and misunderstanding that our salvation was accomplished. 
And we're so thankful for the, uh, the example of Jesus who understood that his suffering was much greater than himself. And it wasn't about him, though the suffering was real. It was about your eternal purposes. Would you remind us this morning as we take of the bread and the cup that the circumstances that we find ourselves in today is much bigger than you, than us. It's, it's about you and you putting your purposes, your glory on display through us, your children. So worship team begins to lead us, so I invite you to come. If you're a believer, we welcome you to share with us in communion this morning. There's wine here on my right, grape juice on my left. Come to whichever side your conscience would direct you. Take of the elements, return, and we will take of the elements together. So worship leaders, lead us come as they sing beginning in the front.
Lord, your word speaks to our hearts and exposes the attitudes of our hearts. It opens our eyes to see how, how miserably we fall short of your glory. And yet your word also encourages our hearts because you are gracious and you are compassionate. And all oh, your amazing grace. Lord, thank you. Thank you for showing us how much we need you. Thank you for showing us those areas of our lives where you, we need your spirit to work in us so that we can rightly reflect your nature and character. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your example of suffering and sacrifice for our salvation. All of this reminds us of the amazing grace that has been extended to us we're not going to wallow in self-pity over our shortcomings and failures as bosses and employees, as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers and as kids. We could just beat ourselves down over that. But we're going to exalt in Christ our Savior. Knowing that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in our hearts by faith. And as we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we remember that and we say, Oh, Holy Spirit, out of our deadness, bring life and the power of the resurrection that we may live our lives for your glory. Live and communicate in such a way that people will see our good works and not glorify us, but glorify our Father who is in heaven and be drawn to that same salvation that we so enjoy. So as we eat and drink together, let there be a renewing of our hearts and a strengthening of our faith and a working of your spirit in us and through us for your glory. Let's eat and drink together.